from the swampy regions of Bon Tomp, Louisiana, it's the IGN DigiGods. So please sink your teeth into two men I want to do bad things to, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Yeah, first time submission from a listener. Ashley Fakava. Yeah. Like you care. Oh, Bob. We do care. In fact... <laughs> I care deeply. You were, you were just singing a very depressing song that you just made up. That was really funny. Actually, um, uh, here's, here's, a, uh, uh, here's a tune yeah. that is uh, good for us, Yes. but a little obvious. Right. Home Media Magazine Yes. on their front page. You're right. They are touting this new study that says the longer the theatrical window, the bigger the disc sales. Duh. Seriously. In April, there was a report, a window into film, where Google analyzed consumer consumption of movies theatrically and in the Mm -hmm. home. Uh, It was off as... While uh, search activity for DVD terms remained high in 2010, it was off 45% from two years ago. Um, A more interesting insight we garnered from this search is that uh, consumers continue to have a strong... Turn to page 20... Turning to page 20, a strong desire to consume film, co- film content in the home post its theatrical run. That's post its theatrical run, not like yes. while it's in the Yes, not, not like a premium VOD. No, it's just not going to happen. The, 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 the problem here, and this before we get back into DVDs, but the problem is that the, the knee-jerk reaction by a lot of these companies, studios and others, is that when uh, sales start going down, they think, "Oh my gosh, the short attention span has collapsed even more." So we've got to get we've got to get the movies out there faster and get them out of theaters faster and get them on a DVD faster, so that the sales will accelerate again. Not thinking maybe the old time-tested idea of scarcity will work. I mean, this is this is like the morons are running these these companies. I just can't believe the stupidity. Look at history, for crying out loud. If these people would just take off their idiot hats long enough to read up on film history and realize that all the old studio moguls understood that the value of their movies was in the scarcity with which people consumed them, which means, you know, you hold on to it and you, you put it in theaters and then you take it out. It's the Disney vault concept, right? You take it out of circulation just long enough that people start to want it again, and then you put it out there. I mean, they made their money off of re-releases. They didn't well, have DVDs. Well, also... Uh what they're forgetting, and maybe just don't care, is that it's the theatrical that sets the value of a movie. Thank you. The value of a movie is set in its theatrical run. If it winds up on VOD, direct to VOD, see, that's it what means scares nothing. Them. That's what scares them. They want to get it out there before people realize it has no value. Because that was when DVD sales plateaued. And they, the stat that nobody paid attention to, they said, "Oh my gosh!" And I think it was um, it was Shrek Two that that where where the whole where the tide turned. Shrek Two was a huge hit in theaters, and they expected it to be a huge hit, and it undersold enormously when it hit DVD. It just didn't it didn't sell. Like they they freaked out and they thought, "Oh my gosh, what's happening?" The formula worked before. You do this much money here, you make this much money there. There was a correlation. Suddenly with Shrek 2, that didn't happen. And it was, it was a very simple explanation, which was people were running out of space on their shelves. And they had to start making choices. And instead of just buying everything, they said, you know what? I think now I'm only going to buy the good stuff. And good movies continued to have strong correlation between the DVD sales and the box office. Bad movies, the ones that made a ton because they marketed the crap out of them, suddenly hit DVD and didn't do so well. That's what freaked them out. And then they realized we've got to start making good movies. We can't just count on marketing our way to, well, to I, the sales. I, I, I think everything you said has just been set back about a year thanks to Fast and Furious. Five. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how the rest of the summer goes. Because uh, you know as well as I do, there are going to be some clunkers this summer. Well, there are clunkers they, they, every summer. I mean, making movies is inherently a risk. But, I mean, it, it, is, it has gotten to the point. It used to be. It used to be. If you go back into the 80s and the 90s, you had, like, a, at least one big tent pole a month, but not more than two. Right? And from Memorial Day through the end of July, you had maybe five big tent pole movies. Well, the summer season just started. We're at the beginning of May. We're not even at the end of May. It's been expanded a month, and it's going to go all the way through August, and there is at least one every week, sometimes two. I mean, we've got like 18 tentpole movies in the next four months. 
And they, can't, and, and they can't all open at $80 million. And they can't all open at $80 million. And they can't all make $200 million. So there, something's going to, you know, something's got to give. And, but they all cost $200 million. So somebody's going to lose their shirt this summer. And uh, there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing. And everybody's going to decide, you know, do we continue to play this game of chicken? Or do we kind of get onto a... I mean, this is going to be a, a really turn... This is going to be like a turning point summer. It will. I'm very curious to see what, and this has nothing to do with DVDs, but I'm very curious to see what happens with the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean sequel because, you know, here's a movie nobody asked for. No, and nobody wanted. And I don't know that anybody wanted. I mean, it it just seems like a a, a complete Excel spreadsheet play. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's get into some DVDs. Oh, DVDs. Yeah, by the way, Mark, you're looking at the home uh, media magazine there. Tell everybody what's on the cover. What do they have to look forward to? Because we are really looking forward to this. I am. Come the on, artwork, The artwork sells it. It's too bad we can't sort of... It's awesome. It's like all exploitation and cool. Oh, my gosh. Rutger Hauer is hobo with a shotgun. <laughs> That's a great... Delivering justice one shell at a time. With a full-on exploitation one-sheet from the uh, from the bad old days. This would have been, like, in 1971, this would have just been killer. And they know that. I mean, that, of that's course what they do. making. Hobo and you know what? It's huh? the best. It, well, it's coming out on uh, on DVD and, uh, DVD and Blu-ray July 5th. Also coming out, by the way, folks, uh, Adjustment Bureau is coming out uh, June 21st, a movie that Wade and I both, uh, we respected the attempt. I, I think it ultimately failed. But we respected the attempt. No, absolutely. I, I give them uh, an A for effort. And I wish there were a way to do that in reviews, you know. Anyway. Uh, oh, oh, well, here's one you want, which is May 17th coming up real soon. Uh, Biebermania. Heaven help us. You love Biebermania. It's your favorite. Um, I'm yes. gonna uh, I'm gonna let you kind of organize some of the, uh, the music and the TV and all that jazz. What? Uh, while I blow through some foreign. Okay. Well, because I've had this foreign stuff sitting around forever, and you know it's been a, it's been a thing. So you know people need to know about this. But we have got a couple of uh, criterions actually. Uh, one is uh, Fat Girl, the Catherine Brea film. Now I am not a fan of Catherine Brea. This is on Blu-ray, and uh, it, I just find it kind of interesting that Criterion would do this. But uh, it's I almost the interviews with Catherine Brea on here. From the 2001 Berlin Film Festival period when the film uh, debuted are actually, I think, more interesting than the film. I'm not a huge fan of this film. However, a lot of people do. And they, a lot of people really find this to be uh, kind of some kind of weird feminist uh, existential statement. And uh, I, I just find Catherine Breyer's films sort of pretentious and annoying. But it's a, it is a very good Blu-ray. And uh, Criterion deserves credit for bringing it out. More My Speed is Smiles of a Summer Night, the Ingmar Bergman uh, comedy, which is the only comedy Ingmar Bergman ever made, unless Virgin Spring just makes you bust oh, a gut. Oh, that's funny. Oh, oh isn't that God. hilarious? That's a laugh riot. Oh, that's a laugh riot. But uh, if uh, otherwise, Smiles of a Summer Night is the other side of Ingmar Bergman, and uh, this is also Blu-ray. Fantastic. Gorgeous. Beautiful. Uh, pristine 1955, black and white. You just won't believe how fun and funny this movie is. Um... And uh, not a huge amount uh, of extras on here. There's a video conversation uh, with uh, Bergman scholar Peter Cowie and writer John Donner, who uh, was the executive producer of Fanny and Alexander. That's actually quite interesting. And then there's a uh, an Ingmar Bergman video introduction, and that's about it. But uh, you get you know the usual booklet and whatnot. But anyway, this is uh, it's really sharp. Smiles of a Summer Night, uh, terrific on Blu-ray. You gotta get it. Moving down the line, uh, Liverpool. Yeah, <laughs> did you want me to vamp for you while you? Uh, no, 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 no. While, I, while I dig into the pile, no, that's okay. Uh, Liverpool got uh, quite a lot of attention last year. This is a uh, this was a big deal at Cannes and at Toronto. This is out from Kino, and um, uh, this is part of the Argentine new wave that's uh, making a real fuss. And uh, there is a bit of this been compared to some genre noir films in a way. I think it's uh, it's poetic in that way, but it's also a little gritty at the same time. And uh, it's good, although I think um, that uh, Libertad is still probably the uh, the better film from Lissandro Alonso. Uh, anyway, it's uh, you know it's it's a great look at uh, working class lifestyle and kind of that existential sense of alienation that we all feel in the modern world. You know, when I make at least re- I feel it, don't you? When I make a really good omelet, it's existential. It's really really good. Wow. 
Moving past that horrible joke, uh, Gerard Depardieu stars as Inspector Bellamy, the uh, very last film made by Claude Chabrol before he died, and certainly not one of his best. Um, Gerard Depardieu in this film is uh, freaking enormous. Uh, though you not- know what? I, honestly, here's what I'm about to do right now. I'm going to look up uh, uh, Gerard Depardieu at, at uh, what's it called? Wikipedia. IMDb, and you are going to tell me how many movies he's been in. Oh, he's well over 100, probably about 150 at this point. I'm just gonna say. Uh, it's, Actually, it's, it's I, I'm gonna. gonna I, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna go out on. Let me see. Um, I'm gonna How bet. many movies has Gerard Depardieu been in? I'm going to say. Oh my god! I'm gonna say about 170. That's a great guess. You know what? Actually, if you take away all the ones that are announced or in pre-production, which yeah. is always a little strange on IMDb, yeah. yeah, you've got about 175. Yeah. Because uh, there's uh, there's 108, IMDb lists 187 titles, yeah, and about a dozen of them are announced or in pre-production. Well, That's an amazing guess. You, you know, well, it's partly because I, I had to do a little bit of, I mean, I, it's not that I cheated, but I've, I've always kind of followed Depardieu's career, and uh, from the beginning, you know, I've been, I've been a fan forever, and I've done commentary for some of the DVDs that, of movies that he's done, and um, I did, I moderated an event at Colcoa, no jokes, you always make fun of me for talking about Colcoa, I moderated an event with Bertrand Blier, who of course has made like eight films with Depardieu alone, just, you know, it's like, uh, what, what's that, 2%? <laughs> all by himself. Yeah, He's made exactly. 2%. And um, Blier talked about uh, Depardieu being, you know, Cold Cuts. It was the, the first film they made together. It was Blier's big kind of one of his big coming-of-age films. And uh, we talked a little bit about Depardieu and directing him. I, and, and I asked him about that. And he said, you know what? Uh, there are actors that need a lot of direction. Depardieu was my first great rela- – and this is why I worked with him so much and why a lot of people love working for him. I, he said he tried to give him direction, and Depardieu would be like, yeah, don't bother. I get it. I know how to do it. And he just kind of wave him off, and he'd nail it. Yeah, you know, just doesn't need direction. The right. guy just—he just knows. He just intuitively gets it, and that's rare in an actor. Bogart was like that. You know, you talk, you listen to read a lot of directors from back in the '30s and '40s, and they'll say, "Yeah, I never needed to give Bogart any direction." It's yeah. just, you know, I mean, just let him do it. Houston said that in, in *Maltese Falcon*. It's just like Bogart nailed it. You well, just don't give him direction. He knew how to do it. Well, unfortunately, Bogart didn't last long enough to do 175 films. That's true. But anyway, coming back to Inspector Bellamy, not one of Claude Chabrol's best. Um, this is a uh, this is you kind of feel the talent waning a little bit. But that being said, Depardieu is very very good. Uh, he kind of brings the heft of this uh, this grizzled inspector and and carries the film in ways the film almost doesn't need to be carried. Uh, but uh, you know what? Um, probably good for I guess just if you're a Chabrol fan or a, or a Depardieu fan. Not really that great for anybody else. Uh, blow through these real quickly. Time for Drunken Horses is by, from Baman Gobadi. If you're a fan of uh, Persian cinema, or at least that kind of poetic Persian cinema that is largely started to vanish, uh, you might want to check this out. And Baman Gobadi is actually a Kurdish filmmaker, but his style of filmmaking is all very, very uh, Persian-influenced. This is not his best film, but it is uh, very typical of his work. It's, uh, you know, it has the same kind of per- poetic irony to it. It's funny. It's touching. Uh, it's very engaging. And, uh, you know, the, the story centers around this, this uh, as they often do, kind of centers around a lot of the stuff that goes on in Iraq and Iran and, uh, and the people who live on the fringe of those, rela- those uh, uh, geopolitical explosions and this is about this Kurdish family that's just right on the border between Iran and Iraq and uh, how smuggling and the uh, everything that goes along with it impacts their lives it is uh, it's beautifully shot and really kind of the irony in this is rather fascinating um, yeah definitely check this out uh, yeah good guy I'll watch that again now, now suddenly I'm talking about it and I want I want to watch it again uh, Marine, Public Enemy Number One. We talked about the uh, the, the uh, first part in this. It's a little um, confusing that Public Enemy Number One is the number two film of the two. I'm confused. Yeah, never mind. Anyway, Marine, Jacques Marine, played by Vincent Cassel. This is on. Uh, we got this on Blu-ray. It's fabulous. Uh, this goes right along with the uh, Carlos. I think is the two great gangster slash terrorist epics of last year. Uh, two amazing films, and uh, you know what? This is like a four-hour-plus epic, but 
Jacques Mayrin was one hell of an unbelievable figure, and uh, this does not glamorize him, but you got to see Vincent Cassell in this performance. And the second film is where all hell breaks loose. This is just a terrific epic. Uh, get the first one, get the second one, put them on the shelf, watch them back-to-back with uh, Carlos and uh, all three Godfather films. <laughs> that's like, that's it's like 12 like hours. Full, it's like a full day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much a full day. Uh, wrapping these things out, uh, the latest film from Margareta von Trotta, one of the great uh, new German cinema pioneers, is Vision, which is the story of uh, a medieval nun named Hildegard von Bingen. It, uh, this is an interesting film in the sense that part of it looks like it was made in the 70s and the other part looks like a modern film. It's, uh, it's compelling, although it's kind of odd at times, but uh, the, the true or mostly true story of this very, very uh, influential nun is, uh, is quite uh, engaging. So uh, Von Trotta still has it going on. The, uh, it's kind of a feminist anthem in a way, which is odd. But uh, Barbara Sukoa, who plays uh, Hildegard von Bingen, really nails it. It's a great performance, very nuanced, and uh, I highly recommend this, despite I'm, its I'm interesting gonna call, flaws. I'm going to call my children Hildegard. You should do that. Even a boy. And then, uh, lastly, the uh, by no coincidence, the uh, another Baman Gobadi film, No One Knows About Persian Cats, is also being released. This is from IFC. Clearly, they knew that uh, Time for Drunken Horses was getting released, so they threw this out there. I got to say, this is the, the this is one that I can't necessarily recommend, um, partly because it's. You know, I I get it. It's all about you know rock and roll in Iran, and it's it's kind of uh, it's trying to be a little bit more modern. It's trying to be a little bit more ironic than his films normally are, but it loses, it misses something about the it misses kind of the poetic element of his films, and I miss that. So, you know, making a film that's kind of an underground protest film, not really his style. I can't highly recommend that one. Lastly, on the uh, foreign film front, Silent Naruza from uh, Criterion's Eclipse Line. This is Eclipse Series Twenty Six. And uh, Naruza, of course, one of the great uh, Japanese filmmakers of all time. He has not been fully appreciated here. When I was in New York about four or five years ago, there's a big Naruza retrospective uh, at, at uh, gosh, I can't even remember which art house. One of the art house complexes there in New York. But there was a big Naruza retrospective, and I thought, wow, they just don't necessarily have those in L.A. Um, they always do the easy retrospectives in L.A. But anyway, this is uh, all of his silent work, and uh, it includes Flunky, Work Hard, uh, No Blood Relation, uh, Apart From You, Every Night Dreams, Street Without End. Um, you know, if, if you want to see really interesting Japanese silent cinema, this is for you. I can't imagine it's for everybody. So uh, do a little research on Naruza and see if, uh, you know... He's your cup of tea. All right, Mark. What, what else we got? Uh, I don't know. What else we got? We got. Uh, we're doing movies. Oh, what are we doing? Yeah, let's do that. Let's get that out of the way. Exactly. All right. Well, we have uh, two different uh, iterations of uh, the Seth Rogen film Green Hornet, which is a dreadful, tedious, horrible film. <laughs> and uh, we have a straight Blu-ray, which is uh, a straight Blu-ray. And then we have the super duper Blu-ray 3D. Regular Blu-ray and the DVD combo pack, all in one big, gigantic, insane turd. If you buy this, yes. you're an idiot. <laughs> if you buy the 3D of this, yes. I will hunt you down like the dog that you are, and I will slaughter you in the street. I want our listeners to know that. Gods at Digigods.com. Gods at Digigods.com. This is uh, Seth Rogen's baby. This is his uh, version of the classic uh, Green Hornet, I guess, origin story. And what... what not, not, ori- not originally conceived in 3D, by the way. It was no. only when they realized that they had a, they, they had a, a, big, a big stinker on their hands that they said, they, oh, let's, let's 3D it up. It's like, it's like 3D is the only format where they go, God, this movie sucks. How can we make people pay more for it? <laughs> 3D. Because they think you're stupid. They think audiences are idiots. This is a, uh, this is a mismatch of, uh, of actor, writer, and, mater- and director, Michel Gondry. I don't know why he's directing this movie. Um, the... Where it really fails, I think, is with Seth Rogen because you get a sense that this is Seth Rogen's, uh, this is his sensibility on film. This is what he thinks is funny. You feel that unfilteredness in it. And if that's the case, what Seth Rogen thinks is funny is not what I think is funny. I would agree completely. And so uh, you got some, uh, you know, there's a couple of okay action shots, I guess. Christoph Waltz is kind of trying to muddle through it in his own way as uh, the villain of the piece. Uh, the 3D, three-disc combo pack has got a bunch of um, extras on it, including a filmmaker commentary, storyboards, 
And uh, the uh, Blu-ray 2D feature film has gag reels, deleted scenes, commentary, a bunch of featurettes. But this is just a this is just a complete misfire. Yeah, it's useless. I mean, this is almost unendurable. I mean, I, I, honestly, you know, the uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this: the um, the end credits are cute. The end. Yeah, they're, they're they're cute. You know what I what I find I find a lot of the uh, peripheral stuff fascinating here. The um, the regular Blu-ray has a special offer. This is one of the new ways. I mean, they are trying to whenever they have a stinker and they know that they have a movie that's lost money. One of the new strategies is we are now going to find every conceivable way to erase that that loss or to minimize that loss, even if it means whoring ourselves in the most deplorable ways possible. I mean, this is where the studios are at right now. They're not willing to say, you know what, that movie was a stinker. We took a loss on it. Let's just cut our losses, move on, and do something better the next time. No, they're willing to dedicate a whole new suite of resources to somehow minimize that loss so that they don't lose their job, so they can still say to the higher-ups at the corporate level, yeah, but you know what? We fought to get back those dollars that we lost. Well, and there's here nothing we... wrong with that. Yeah, no, but it's, 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 it's come on. There's no dignity in that. I, and, I, you know, and I know, I know there's no dignity in, in the, uh, the there's rise. There's no crying of... in baseball. No, but look, seriously, three months, free magazines. They're combining free magazine offers. Try three free months of your favorite magazines. Offer expires October 15th. Give me a break. Seriously, I mean, come on, a little dignity. And you know, what's funny is that that audience—they don't read magazines. No, they I don't. Mean, they don't. Know, most the of them, they don't know how to read. They're on their iPhones. Not reading magazines. Stupidity. Anyway, Green Hornet is just dreadful. Dreadful, horrible, miserable. All right, Mark, you had a theory about this film. Go ahead, share your theory with us. <laughs> I like my theory. Uh, there's a brand new uh, director on the scene named uh, Damien Chazelle. Gesundheit. And his directing debut is a very unique and experimental and terrific and transporting film called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. And I would tell you what Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench is about, but I don't really know. It's essentially a love story combined with a jazz musical. And it is in black and white, and it is just terrific. And uh, this is a crazy uh, thing. Now, my theory. Yeah, I, which I had never heard. And, I, and I, I mean, I think this is a charming film. It's an unusual and charming film. And I give Stanley Tucci all kinds of credit for effectively making it happen. I mean, you know, Stanley Tucci's a guy I grew up with. He played gangsters and bad guys on TV. And, and then somehow he's turned into like an independent film darling. It's incredible. You know, uh, Big Night was. That was the coming of age. That was the coming that was of it. age. And that's a terrific movie. That, that movie that's holds such up. a good movie. Uh, here's my theory on Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. The reason why it is called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench is because they are trying to evoke Guy Madden. Now, Guy Madden is a Canadian uh, director who is very experimental yeah. and does all of his films in a black-and-white, scratchy 1930s <laughs> Guy, Guy, Guy Madden's movies all look like they were shot in 1932 and then thrown under a bus. In fact, I'm going to Google that right now, Wade. Do that. Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench and then Guy Madden. This is, this is, I mean, this is terrific. Good, good for Cinema Guild. We applaud Cinema Guild for uh, getting this out there. And uh, this is one of your little charm. This is one of your charming gems that you should seek out. Uh, really good commentary on this with uh, Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz, who composed the music. That's uh, that's a good one there. By the way, speaking, of, there's a film, an Amy Tobin piece on here, and that just reminded me. Did you see the um, the Hatchet piece on uh, Elvis Mitchell? Yeah, there's something weird. Well, here's the uh, Elvis Mitchell, who used to be a film critic for well NPR, uh, NPR and million and, million right. places. Yeah, and he's he's considered one of one of the preeminent critics in the country. Yeah, but he has a very spotty employment record in the sense that he takes jobs and doesn't show up for them, mm-hmm. and uh, literally well, takes well, jobs and doesn't show up for well, them. Well, you know, he was he was supposed to be on the new Ebert show with uh, with Christie, our friend Christie of the AP, uh, Christie Lemire. And uh, they never even shot a single episode, and he bailed. Oh, he bailed. And he, he was just released as movie line film critic. Yes. And Ann Thompson, who used to write for The Hollywood Reporter and now writes for Variety, uh, did a hatchet piece. She's still with Variety, isn't she? Or has she moved on, too? Uh, I think she does. She's on. In, in, is she IndieWire now? Oh, IndieWire. Yeah, it's IndieWire. Well, who keeps it? You know, they, they all move around. It's, it's, it's fragile business that we're in. But she did a hatchet piece on him, the likes of which I could not believe. It was it was it, it became very it personal. Mean. It was very oh, personal. Oh my gosh, it was it was weird. It was odd. It was like venting her spleen. Something happened there. Who knows? Anyway, moving on to things of, of relevance uh, in the TV world, 
Mark, I know you're a big fan of Boy Meets World. Here's what I have you to love say, it. Wade. Boy Meets World, the complete fifth season. Move yes. on. <laughs> I mean, come on. What, what am I going to say? Um, you're going to say you love it because uh, after four seasons, it finally won you over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, it's off its spindle, Wade. What, mo- what, what movie? What TV show is off its spindle? Penn and Teller's Bullshagooey. <laughs> uh, the complete eighth season. I think the show is great. This uh, show is directed by that. show is uh, directed by a guy I worked with years ago named Star Price. So talented, he's helped make this show uh, as great as it is. Sending it right into an eighth season. Uh, all sorts of great um, uncovering of uh, conspiracies and you know these for some reason closely held notions about uh, the world we live in. You know stuff about. Like debunking in season eight, debunking uh, you know TV psychics and great. and end of the world theories. Of course, we have an end of the world theory coming well, up they, soon on May twenty first. Yeah, and they have sort of taken the the work of the amazing Randy to a whole new level. You know, the amazing Randy was was great. He's just the ultimate debunker. Remember, he debunked Peter Popoff, who was sort of like Ernest Angley, except he didn't. He wasn't as careful as Ernest Angley. And we're really digging deep right now. Ernest Angley used to be a, a standard Robin Williams target. And he was a TV preacher. And Peter Popoff was like a second-rate Ernest Angley or third-rate. And um, the people he healed, there was always a scam going on. He had a little receiver in his ear, and his wife was feeding him information from somewhere. And Randy went to one of their revivals and um, with a shortwave radio and picked up all of those, those transmissions and recorded them and completely blew Popoff out of the water. And yet, for some unbelievable reason, Popoff is now on television again, and he's soliciting money again. And just d- dumb idiots all over the country are throwing their money at him all over again. Even though he's a proven fraud, it's bizarre. I, you know, people really are stupid. It's uh, insane yes. how stupid they can be. That is true. So Penn and Teller, they they are carrying on that tradition of trying to destupidify us. Destupidus. All right, a bunch of things from Lifetime. Now, Lifetime makes a lot of original movies, and uh, most of them are absolutely unwatchable. They are horrible. They are made for the stupid people that we were just talking about. Uh, mostly you know, depressed housewives who uh, have pretty much run the course with their soap operas and they look for some kind of uh, solace in these. Um, here's what we got. And I'm go through this real quickly. Mom and her dad. Dreadful. Uh, playing house. Absolutely horrible. Slightly better. Sex and the single mom. And more sex in The Single Mom, both of which star Gail O'Grady and Grant Show. Now, Grant Show, of course, was, uh, was a fixture on Melrose Place in its first incarnation, and he doesn't have much of a career anymore, but he still has his looks. And, uh, you know, there's something kind of deliciously lascivious and uh, tawdry about these, which is why they made two of them. And the one that I would recommend, which it may be unintentionally hilarious, uh, Virginia Williams and Shelley Long in Honeymoon with Mom. That title tells you everything you need to know. Shelley Long has all but vanished from uh, from films, so when she shows up, I actually kind of find it fascinating on a certain level. And uh, you know, is it is it good? No, but it's um, it's entertainingly and unintentionally hilarious in some respects. Mainly because it's just look honeymoon honeymoon with mom. I mean, do I need to elaborate? Um, I certainly hope not. No, absolutely not. I would not wish that on anybody. No. No. Uh, let's see. Do we do? Oh, oh, oh. Um, music or, or animated? What do you? What? What? Which one? Mm, animated. Animated. Let's do it. I'll All take right. animated for five hundred. All hours. right. All right. I'll let you you get started with because I know how you love the Super Squad. Oh, nonsense. the Superhero Squad. I God, this is just the worst. Why <laughs> they do this? It's so dreadful. Where they take superheroes, and they make them like little. Because we're getting to to the the big summer of uh, tying all this stuff up. You know, they started shooting the Avengers. I know. I know. It's yeah. finally there. Did you ever think, you know, when we were growing up, whenever there was like a crossover episode, oh my God, a crossover uh, 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 a comic, issue of a comic, oh my God, Spider-Man's going to meet whatever. Hey, look, I bought the first issue of, of the, the big crossover of all Spider-Man time. Spider-Man uh, and uh, Superman? That's the one, the DC Marvel crossover, and that was terrific. You know, Lex Luthor and Doc Ock. Come on, No, but it now it's like the, the tro- crossover, yeah. the, 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 the crossover issues of our youth are coming to life yeah. in a movie with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, the superhero squad is it's it's for toddlers. It's just little these little <laughs> tiny diminutive versions of uh, Iron Man and Doctor Doom and Silver Surfer and Wolverine. Yeah. And it's just horrible. Uh, you know what? I mean, how much can they squeeze out of this thing? But obviously they're trying to they're trying to indoctrinate 
I know. A, young, a very young generation yes, into the whole I know they are. Uh, Marvel thing. And then we have uh, one that's a little bit better, which is um, The Avengers. Well, two volumes, one two and volumes, two. Two volumes, one and two coming out. And uh, these are a little... I, I don't like the blocky animation of uh, the characters on these. That's the only thing. But uh, all the favor, all your favorites are here, and uh, you know, a Thor and um, Captain America, Iron Man. Oh look, and Hulk. Oh look, movie about him, movie about him, movie about him, movie about him. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> um, there's 13 episodes uh, total on these um, on these two volumes. One, uh, volume one is called Heroes Assemble. Volume two is called Captain America Reborn. And there's bonus features on them, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, including um, Swankabilly. Huh? It's swank. It's, you know, you know what it is. Swankabilly. It's Swankabilly. Thank you. I just made that word up. Isn't that cool? No. Watch, watch it in about – it'll go viral, and in like a month's time, it'll be everywhere. I'm, You'll have I, kids going, that's so Swankabilly. I did it right here. I'm I have gonna, proof. I'm going to Google that right now. Swankabilly. I'm going to Google that right now. Uh, ben 10, Ultimate Alien Power Struggle. Ten more episodes. You know, this Ben 10 stuff is just really tired, and especially the live action. This is not the live action. This is the animated, of course, Cartoon Network, Ben 10. He's a kid. He fights aliens, blah, blah, blah. I had a horrible, horrible um, nightmare, like a living nightmare, a waking nightmare. What would that be called? A wake-mare? <laughs> a day-mare? A day-mare. A day-mare, sure. A day-mare. I had a day-mare while uh, just reviewing this real quickly, and it was, oh, my gosh, I'll bet they're going to do, like, uh, some kind of a big screen version of this, and it'll star Justin Bieber. That, Are they? I, I don't know, oh. but I have this horrible fear that they're going to do an, a, a live action big screen version, and Justin Bieber will be Ben Ten, and I'm going to have to see it. But you know, and it'll what? be it, in 3D. Well, the problem is that you can't do a show like Ben Ten. You, you've got to spend, you've got to spend, uh, you know, eighty million dollars on that movie. You know True. I mean? you, you, it's space aliens, and he's in space, and he's fighting a bunch of p- crazy people. Like you can't do that for twenty-five million dollars and hedge your bets. And there's no way that the studio is going to spend that kind of money on Ben Ten. Uh, you, you know, the, what can you say about Dragon Ball Z? Uh, this is their DVD box volume five, and uh, I, 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 you know, we could we could try to sell you on this, but really, this th- there's a reason why the. Um, the text on the back is really interesting. I find the marketing strategy very very telling here, and this is what I really want to zero in on. There's a whole lot of text in the back about what it's about, and it's all in black, and it's like you know, 10 or 11 point uh, font, but there are certain parts that they pull out and change, and they make it bigger, and they make it orange. And, the, and this, is, this tells you everything you need to know. If you're really reading the text on the back, what this is about... Uh, this isn't for you. Read the text that they have managed to, uh, to magnify and change the color on, and this is what you read. Hardcore fans, the Dragon Box is here. That's it. That's all you need to know. Because when you're walking down the aisle at Best Buy yeah. or wherever, uh, there's a chance... That you, you will see this. See. If you see this yellow box and you know the, the Dragon Ball... That's five or it. six words. That's it. That's it. You're, 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 you're good to go. That's it. That's it. This is for hardcore fans. Nobody else. A few other anime things real quickly. Uh, Vampire Night Guilty, uh, number one. This is the first four episodes of... Look, anime has gone vampire crazy like everybody else. And uh, it's a little... Some of the older vampire stuff uh, from the 90s I think is interesting. But this is this just feels... I don't know. This just feels like they're pushing it too much. This is uh, from Viz, which gets uh, released through Warner Brothers. And um, it's four episodes from Vampire Night Guilty. I, it's beautifully animated. Looks really nice. I just don't find the um, I just don't find the story all that compelling. Uh, Pokemon has uh, Pokemon like in the anime world. This feels like silent movies all of a sudden, doesn't it? You know what? I I I, I think there should be like a smackdown between Pokemon and Pogs. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, this is uh, Pokemon still going. This is a ba- box set of Pokemon Galactic Battles. Uh, the first box set, I, I just didn't realize Pokemon still had any kind of a following. But, uh, you know, to me it's unwatchable. But for somebody, it's it's got some juice somewhere, I guess. Somebody's kids are watching it. Uh, season 2 of Sergeant Frog, episodes 27 through 51. One of the weirdest anime entries that you will ever see. This is like uh, Pokemon on Acid or Lidsville on Quaaludes or something. Um, 
Seriously, it's, or some animated thing on some it's drug. It's just bizarre. It's it, it, it is it's entertaining. This is from Funimation. It's entertaining, but I just find it so bizarre that I, I I get why it's a hit in Japan. I can't imagine who really could get on board with something this weird over here. And then what I really want to recommend is a terrific Blu-ray and DVD combo pack of Eden of the East, The King of Eden. Uh, this is really good stuff. This is um, um, incredibly well written and. Yes, very well animated, but it's the it's the scripting here that really carries this. And uh, you know, it, it, people oftentimes mock Japanese uh, animation factories because they don't put any effort into the writing, and uh, these guys really do. So um, give them some kudos and go check this out. Maybe not worth a purchase, but certainly a rental. Uh, Eden of the East, the King of Eden. Uh, should we do some music then? Yes, Wade. Frank Sinatra. The Voice. Hack. Hack. What's he done lately? Nothing. Uh, in the 60s, he began having a, a series of annual uh, television specials. Uh, the first was from 1965. It was called A Man and His Music. He actually showed up a lot on Dean Martin's show, too. Oh, yeah. It was great. Uh, so anyway, the one from 1965 is just great. I get a kick out of you. Come fly with me. lady. Uh, the lady is a tramp. Just great stuff. And then, uh, the following year... He did another one, "Luck Be a Lady." That's life. These these they were musical specials where they had amazing guest uh, guest singers. Like uh, part two had Nancy Sinatra, his daughter. Then they had uh, the third annual one, uh, the third annual special. Frank was joined by Ella Fitzgerald and Antonio Carlos uh, Yobim, and it was just great. The girl from Ipanema. Short and fat and old and stupid. The oh, I girl love that song. In, but wait, that, those aren't the real. No, they're not the real lyrics. Oh, no, okay. the real lyrics are actually Portuguese, and I, I'm not even going to try to sing those. Thank you very much. Uh, anyway, and there, there was a fourth one that was done like years after uh, the first one, and um, that one's on here too. That one includes uh, Count Basie and his orchestra. The best is yet to come. Theme from New York, New York. And you know, what, hearing Sinatra sing the theme from New York, New York, it's mm. like. It's, it's it's great, it's, isn't it's, it? It's emotional. It's like it's like God yeah. has come down to bless New York, totally. the greatest city in the world, because Frank's not just singing about it. I miss Manhattan. When was the last time you were there? Uh, I go back every Thanksgiving. I'm going back in June. Oh, man. I, I miss it. I haven't been back for a couple of years. Anyway, so this is uh, Frank Sinatra, A Man and, and His Music, The Collection. So these are all four Man and His Music specials, uh, three from the 60s, and then uh, one that was done about 15 years later. And newly remastered, sounds great, looks great. This is just great, great stuff. It is Mother's Day coming up, and it's possible. Oh, that mom would want herself a little bit of Frankie? Yes. In fact, if this was on Blu-ray, I would um, I would probably take it from you. But it's not on Blu-ray. No. It's on DVD. But and it's you Frankie. Know what? Mark only does Blu-rays now. Uh, yeah, I, I'm getting that to that point. I, I have gotten to that point. I've gotten to that point. Only Even though... do Blu-rays. Even though a lot of DVDs look really good upconverted, I gotta say that some of them look really awfully good upconverted. Blu-rays. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, you know, there's a British rock group Blues. called Marillion. I remember Marillion. Marillion. Wait, wait, yeah, what was their, wait, 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 wait. What was their big song? Wait, wait. <laughs> the big song was. It's probably not on this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you there? I don't okay. know if it's here. Well, anyway. Uh, they were they were formed they were just kind of on the cusp of the uh, 80s with a little bit of the 70s in their soul and uh, Marillion we just got a we got a concert here Marillion live from Cadogan Hall and they sent us the DVD and the CD that goes along with it and uh, I don't know not my not my speed necessarily but I know a lot of people are really really into them and uh, they remained active pretty much up until just a couple of years ago and for all I know they're still really active with new stuff they just their followers haven't necessarily been uh, all that high profile but the their music all through the uh, the 80s and the 90s and the last decade has been consistent and uh, you know I uh, you know I'm not going to play any of it for you cuz I got something else I'm going to go out on the show with but uh, Marillion is um you know they've kept on ticking, which is more than I can say for a lot of bands from the same period they just like what happened to flock of seagulls where are they where are they where is that hair I mean but the thing is that with Marillion they started in like like the late, late 70s. 70s early late 80s late 70s yeah, you know? yeah. They, had, great. they had a moment yeah well it was you know the um, they, they're connected to fish somehow I think one of the one of the same people who was in the original band is somehow connected to fish anyway 
I wait seriously. Yeah. <laughs> want, want me to do the opera stuff? The, the, the opera? Well, you know, some of our listeners may be into opera. Must I'll do opera. You do Bob Dylan. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, there's We got some Blu-rays for operas and ballet. Uh, all of this is uh, really, really, really great looking. But obviously, if you don't love opera or ballet, it's not going to make any difference. Uh, La Bayadere from the uh, Royal Ballet. This is released by Opus Art. This is the Royal Opera House. Um, beautiful ballet. Um, still don't know what the story is. I didn't follow it very well. Uh, this is, uh, let me go to the next one here. Then we also have uh, from Art House Music, Siddhartha. This is uh, essentially the story of the Buddha put into kind of uh, classical music. The classical music and ballet shell. This is the world premiere uh, from the Bastille Opera House in Paris, performed just this last year. Uh, amazing choreography by somebody named Angelin Preliocage, I think. That's how you pronounce it. Anyway, music by Bruno Mantovani. I don't know either of these people, but anything that takes place in Paris uh, always makes me a little nostalgic. I want to go to Paris, and I want to go to New York again. I miss them both. I do want to go. You know what? Actually, the royal wedding, I maybe want to go to uh, London again. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Did you? By the way, did you watch any of the footage? I didn't really watch the wedding because I didn't care, and I didn't want to be up at night. I wanted to get some sleep. But did you notice that during the royal wedding, the cast of Lidsville started attacking women all over London. And, and, and yeah, they, they were landing on their heads. It was insane. They were attacking and, their heads. And nobody made mention of that on the news. And I'm watching it, and I just thought, this is, this is like some kind of alien invasion, and you're not even mentioning this. Well, supposedly, and if you happen to know what it is, let us know at gods at digigods.com. But there's a reason why you're supposed to wear Ridiculous a, a hat. hats? Yes, there's some tradition behind it. But, but ridiculous hats? I, I, I can't vouch for the... Like, re- like Sarah Ferguson's daughters, you, who look just like her, and one of them has really, like... One of them looks like she was fathered by Sarah Ferguson and Austin Powers. Did you see that one? Yeah. She was wearing the most bizarre thing on her head. I don't know what the hell it was. It was really freakish. Very strange. Anyway, uh, Puccini's La Fanciulla del West... Uh, makes for a very interesting production, courtesy of the, uh, the well, it's a Dutch production, basically. Uh, and this is, um, I don't know, man. Puccini did some weird stuff, and uh, this one kind of threw me. I, I'm not familiar with this. It's kind of like uh, Sergio Leone meets an opera. I don't know. This is It's a Dutch production, though, so go for it. And then lastly, uh, Mahler's Symphony Number no. 5 with the Lucerne Festival Orchestra, Claudio Abado conducting, is really, really awesome. I, uh, I have friends who can't stand Mahler. I actually think Mahler's pretty cool, even though a bit indulgent. And then Christian Thielman and the Vienna Philharmonic do uh, three Beethoven symphonies, one, two, and three, as part of the uh, Discovering Beethoven series. This is from Unitel Classics, also in Blu-ray. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So I continue to endorse Blu-ray as a concert format, first and foremost, even ahead of movies. I got to tell you, watching a concert in Blu-ray, the lossless audio, uh, whether it's opera, ballet, classical concert, it, it really, it, it's terrific. The lossless audio is just, it's, it brings it into your house in the best way imaginable, better than CDs ever could. Tremendous. Yeah, but it's still opera. And that's a problem. I like opera. No, you don't. I do. I went to the full six-hour uh, production that they brought back at the, uh, uh, the uh, music center here some years ago uh, Christy took me for my birthday and uh, it was the full six hour production of uh, Tristan and Isolde Wagner that just sounds boring six hours baby hell. three hours then an intermission then three more hours then you go home and it's like having a great meal it was great Ugh. it was awesome alright Dylan me eh. uh, there of course uh, are no there's no dearth of Bob Dylan documentaries and uh, this one Bob Dylan 1990 to 2006 a never ending narrative is a very good one however it is a compromised by a lack of performance footage because this is quite unauthorized <laughs> it's actually funny on the back of the DVD I just saw this on the back of the DVD it says this DVD is not authorized by Bob Dylan his management or record company and that is of course absolutely true uh, the Although the, the launching off point for the documentary is very interesting, which is by 1990, Bob Dylan, who had a great album uh, a couple years earlier, Oh Mercy, you know, he, when you're Bob, when, when the, in, in the 60s, when you're Bob Dylan, and all of a sudden it's 30 years later, what do you do? How do you stay relevant? Do you try to stay relevant? Where does your musical career go? And Bob Dylan, in the last, uh, in the 90s and a bit in this decade as well, or the, the aughts, he wound up 
creating some great music. The guy just totally turned it around. He became this. Not only did he be, he he became a combination of elder statesman, but also continuing to make fresh great music. It, it, totally true. And so this uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah. So this documentary charts sort of that very interesting phase in Dylan's career. He tours all the time. Dylan never stops touring. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here. There's a lot of great interviews with a bunch of journalists and musicians. And everybody has great things to say about Dylan. There, there is some interesting uh, back and forth regarding what some of his early 90s albums really, uh, really meant in the arc of his career. But everybody agrees that he has somehow managed in this later stage in his career to not just shank it or do a bunch of crap or retire. He has stayed relevant. And uh, it's good stuff. The only problem, of course, is the fact that there's uh, very little performance footage. Uh, next is a documentary by Joel Gilbert called Bob Dylan Revealed. Um, I do like this documentary. Uh, it is all about um, uh, Dylan. And, you know, do you realize... Okay, wait. Yes. I'm about to make you feel old. Okay, make I me feel old. I just want to remind you of something which I was going to remind you okay. of before, but I'll do it now. Okay. In May of 2011, and by the way, this is May of 2011. Bob Dylan mm-hmm. turned 70. Oh, my gosh. Really? Crazy? Wow. It is crazy. Anyway, so uh, Bob Dylan Revealed is uh, Jerry Wexler, who's a producer, and uh, Al Kasha, who's a uh, uh, songwriter. They discuss Dylan's uh, early days in the 60s when he was with Columbia Records. And, um, you know, a bunch of people who played for him, Mickey Jones, who was a drummer, uh, they all talk about him, too. And you get a lot of remembrances from uh, people who work with him early in his career, and uh, this is great stuff. It's really terrific. Again, this doesn't really necessarily need music to accompany it because it's all these sort of remembrances uh, by these people who knew him and worked with him. But uh, it's good stuff. Good double, uh, good double barrel. Uh, Bob Dylan this week. Bob Dylan revealed, and Bob Dylan the never ending narrative. Awesome. We got some uh, interesting classics from VCI. VCI always does a great job of digging up stuff that uh, kind of has fallen through the cracks. Here's what we got from VCI. Simon and Laura, starring Peter Finch. A Simon young... and Simon? No, Simon and Laura, uh, starring Peter Finch and Kay Kendall. Two terrific actors. Peter Finch, so good, so young in this movie. Um, you know, this, there's something kind of oddly prophetic about this. This is basically uh, from the early television era. This is 1955. Um, and uh, they wanted to do a kind of a comedy about the, the vagaries of television, the eccentricities of this newfangled thing called television. We're only about five years into the television um, revolution here, and the idea is they're going to do a – this is 55, mind you. This is, you know, 56 years ago. Uh, they're going to do a, a reality show about a famous couple and their married life every day of the week. What? Except that when you know it's not they're not on camera they they aren't this happily married couple they scream and hate each other. Um, this is a little bit like the Osbournes, except who would have thought in 1955 that when this kind of a thing finally came to pass that it would involve Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah. Like they couldn't even comprehend Ozzy Osbourne in 1955. If you go back to 1955 and you go, yeah, you know what? In in like 50 years they're going to do this show, except there's going to be this guy who used to like bite the heads of bats off of uh, on stage, and he's kind of shot because he took too many drugs, and his wife swears a lot, and his kids are a little screwed up. And imagine showing any of these people the internet. Imagine go to Peter Finch in 1940, uh, blah blah. Show me. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Upstairs and downstairs is another really charming little film. Uh, this one's from 1959. This is basically about, uh, you know, a, uh, a Swedish domestic and how she uh, sort of uh, changes the house when she comes. Um, it's a little bit like, uh, I don't want to give too much away on the plot, because the lead into this is actually very, very funny. But the, uh, the actress who stars in this, uh, Mylène Demangeau, who is a French actress but plays the, you know, a Swede in the movie... Um, it's a little bit like that bit in the producers. Get car. Yeah. I want a toy. I want a toy. Yeah, hilarious. That, that, that bit. Uh, this is could be my pick of the week actually. To Paris with Love is a great old Alec Guinness movie. Uh, Alec Guinness made a lot of movies that nobody here has ever heard of. This is from 1954, and basically he's this guy who wants to give his son uh, a lesson in the birds and the bees. So he takes him to Paris to try and do some matchmaking, and winds up being ma- having a match made for himself, but with a twist. With a twist, Mark. I'm confused. Alec Guinness. Anything with Alec Guinness, always worth watching. And then uh, Tennessee's Partner 
is a, an old Ronald Reagan movie that stars John Payne, Ronald Reagan, Rhonda Fleming, and Colleen Gray. It's a Western, and uh, it's, a, it's not that good, actually. I, I think it's, it's interesting only because of the cast. Uh, because Rhonda Fleming, you know why Rhonda Fleming's a big deal, right? Oh, it's Mr. and Mrs. Fleming's kid. Uh, no, who was Mr. Rhonda Fleming? Um, Debbie Fleming. Ted Mann of Mann Theaters, which is now bankrupt. Really? Yeah. And by the way, speaking of Mann Theaters, they sold the Chinese. I know. I emailed you that thing. That's so bizarre. They, they, they sold it to Ellie Samaha. Yeah. And uh, who was the other one? I forgot the other one. Kushner, Castor, somebody? <laughs> um, who was it? Man, Chinese. <laughs> Look this up. But Eli Samaha, for crying out loud. What? Huh? I know. What does he want with it? It's the worst. I don't get it. I don't get it. Eli Samaha used to run, used to own dry cleaners. Now he, now he owns the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Eli Don Kushner. Don Kushner. Who yeah. he, he produced, well, he's a longtime producer, but he produced yeah. uh, Tron, the Neutron film. Uh, last couple of old classic films here uh, before we, uh, actually I got some listener mail I should probably read. What? Say, I will see. Uh, James Garner in Marlowe, which um, is uh, Philip Marlowe. You know, it's Philip Marlowe, actually, but it's a, an interesting take on the Philip Marlowe thing because it's much more 70s. It's got that whole gritty 70s thing going. This is from the Warner Archive collection, which you can find at warnerarchive.com. That's not Warner Archives, but warnerarchive.com. And, uh, I, I, you know, this is not your grandparents' Raymond Chandler. This is, uh, this is very much a kind of a modern take on it. And Garner uh, really, in quasi-Rockford uh, mode, really gives it a good go. It's, an in, it's really interesting. So I, uh, I think this is a kind of a lost, a lost, not a classic, but kind of a lost mini-classic. Uh, and a pretty good script by Sterling Siliphant, who was a big, uh, big deal screenwriter back in the day. You, you, you and I learned uh, after uh, uh, I'm reading the Jaws log. Yeah, the Jaws log is by um, uh, Carl Gottlieb, the yes. screenwriter of Jaws, and it's a great primer on how to make a movie. Yeah, and because he was there and he he made a diary. Is this a published book or is this an internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing? no, it's a published it's a, book. Good. Uh, anyway, so do you? I, I, just, <laughs> I don't know why I'm just saying this right no, now. No, go ahead, share. Do you realize who was supposed to originally play the uh, Robert Shaw role? You probably already know this. Morgan Fairchild. What? No, Victoria Principal. Oh, uh, there you go. The, uh, the Robert Shaw role was offered to and accepted by Sterling Hayden. Really? But Sterling Hayden had major tax problems. No kidding. And Sterling Hayden couldn't quite work in the United States because they would take all of his money. Okay. So the production thought... <laughs> Why don't you know? Because Sterling Hayden was also a, a writer, so their initial uh, solution mm-hmm. was to have Sterling Hayden write something, which is to say, like write something on a piece of paper, and then the studio would buy the book for one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, and that would basically be his payment to do the movie. But they would hide it. But they would hide it under the guise of buying his book. So my which, my, I, which I guess buying the book, I guess somehow uh, the government couldn't touch that money. I don't know why. So my mention of Sterling Siliphant reminded you of Sterling Hayden. That's what it was. That's what it was. Okay. By the way, Sterling Hayden, my mother was almost his nanny. Did you know that? Really, I did yes. not know that. Yes. And my father, who of course was dating my mother at the time, uh, and who you know had worked in Hollywood for many decades, was not. Uh, he was kind of gave thumbs down to that arrangement. Sterling Hayden was nuts. Yeah, that, and my father knew that. <laughs> you knew, but that wasn't widely known outside of Hollywood circles. Oh, really? Yeah, so my father was like, ah, yeah, no, he, the cuckoo, no, not going to happen. Not a good idea. But my mother was almost uh, almost a nanny for uh, precious bodily fluids. You know, she might have straightened him out because yeah. uh, he was nuts. No, and my mother, she probably would have. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've seen some interviews with him. Gosh, he really he went off the deep end at a certain point. He rambling grew his beard real long. Rambling he was lunatic. Like living on a boat or something. <laughs> you know, he was like he, he was the government chased after him for tax money for uh, years. It's just so weird. Crackpot. Chain smoker, yeah. drinker. He was the Charlie Sheen of his day. With, with, he, I, I'm not sure how many goddesses he had. Yeah. I don't know that he really did. He really rent. He I, I don't know he that he really went the pure cocaine and hookers route <laughs> in his life, which is more Charlie. 
Uh, well. You know, uh, before Franco Zeffirelli made his fantastic version of Romeo and Juliet, which is now sort of the standard against which all others are measured, there was a 1954 version uh, with Lawrence Harvey in the, key, in the lead part that actually was kind of considered the, um, the standard for a long time. Uh, this is also released by VCI in a Blu-ray. VCI Blu-ray. If you're a fan of VCI, you know they will do a good job with Blu-ray, and indeed they have. They did a great job with this. It's beautifully mastered. Um, terrific artwork on the cover. The whole the whole package is just sensational. And I think the movie dates a little bit, you know. It, you look at it and you go, well, okay, it's kind of stagey and it's a little static, and it, it clearly was made in 1954, but you know what, so what? It's uh, If you love Shakespeare, it's part of the whole... It's part of the whole lore of Shakespeare as it evolves through all of these different stages from stage to screen and all the different periods of screen and different uh, technological uh, advances. Uh, it, it continues to remain relevant, and it continues to resonate. So uh, not the greatest Romeo and Juliet, but certainly one that is uh, filmically and historically significant, I think. That's my Shakespeare spiel for the day. Uh, speaking of Shakespeare, uh, Thor, Wade, Thor. And the only connection there that leads you from one to the other is that Kenneth Branagh directed Thor. I'm, I'm just going to start making these odd connections, and you'll just have to keep uh, up. I, I am. I'm working on it. Um, let's see. Uh, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. More? Do we have? Wait, how, how much more of the show do we have to put up with? Uh, about another five minutes. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, I'm going I'm to uh, read some listener mail, and then I'll let you, I'll let you go off on that. Because I just find that too funny for words. I love this movie. <laughs> Okay, hold on. Uh, let's see. Uh, go through the piles of listener mail here. Email us at gods at digigods.com. Is that, is, is that tonight's top ten list? There we go. Uh, Jason Vargo, longtime listener, says, It's funny that Mark mentioned starting to run on a previous show, which I'm listening to right now. One week ago today, I was racing a co-worker after lunch and took a bad fall. Broke my elbow in two places. Suffice to say, don't run, Mark. Just walk. If I followed my own advice, I wouldn't have to. Ha- I wouldn't have had surgery last Tuesday night, uh, or a sling and a splint on my arm right now, and be working from home for the foreseeable future. That's terrible. I know. <laughs> so tragic. Sorry uh, about that. <laughs> see, this is what our this is what our listeners write to us because they care, or they want us to care. One one of the two. Well, we want them to stay safe, Wade. Yes, we do. We don't want them breaking things. That's t- correct. And then Jason Maxwell says, uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation did get a theatrical run, but it flopped hard. Uh, It looked worse in the first movie. Uh, Lost Christopher Lambert as Raiden and deviated from the story of the game. The reason for the Blu-ray release, and I didn't know this because I'm not a gamer, he says, is because a new title in the series just came out two days ago. It's titled just Mortal Kombat. It is the ninth game in the series. It's getting good reviews, B-plus scores, and is set to introduce the series to a new generation, which I find just horribly tragic. I don't want people being exposed anymore to that nonsense. Uh, Mark, go ahead. We're running out of time, so give us the lowdown on that movie. Oh, wait. You know, there's a a movie out called... um, uh, Well, it's straight to DVD, so really, um, it's all bad. It's called Mongolian Deathworm. Yeah! Now, now here's the thing. You realize that there really is a Mongolian deathworm. Mongolian deathworm is <laughs> no. He is a he's a creature who might be mythical, might not be mythical. Certain Mongolian locals actually believe that there is a big red, gigantic worm-like thing that crawls around the Gobi Desert. I mean, there really is Mongolian death. I mean, there may not be one. They're insane. But these Mongolian locals claim that there is a Mongolian yeah. death worm. It's a bright red worm. And they need to get uh, out more. <laughs> they need to get out of the Gobi Desert. Yeah. And uh, so this movie is all about taking the Mongolian death worm you know what this and movie making is. it into a film. This is a low-budget Tremors is what it is. Exactly. For people who don't remember Tremors, that's all it is. Tremors, gosh, what a good movie that was. You know why? Because it was, really was a good it movie. Was, it was fun. It had a sense of humor about itself. It was just a little bit silly, and it, it knew it, and it embraced it, and it's good. All right. Well, anyway, we're, uh, we're wrapping down to the end of the show here, and uh, we're going to go out with a, uh, a tune from the new Christopher Cross album. Now, I'm, I'm playing this tune because this, this song has sort of become an anthem now for my life. I agree with almost everything that Christopher Cross says in it. It's like, wow, he's my generation. That is Oscar winner Christopher Cross. I had originally hoped to kind of tie this album in when Arthur came out, just to sort of say, hey, what's happened to anybody from the original Arthur? And, you know, then we play the music. 
but uh, we didn't get it until now, and the, the new Arthur is tanking, so maybe that's appropriate. Maybe uh, this new album will take off for him. So for everybody who remembers Criss Cross from back in the 80s, here he is from his new album, Dr. Faith, and this track, I'm Too Old For This, I Concur. See you next week. It's raining morons, and I'm too old for this. Enemies, almost no friends. <laughs>